talking to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man, the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would, also, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes, and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. The word of the Lord. recognize that our lead pastor, Paul, is not here today, so I'd ask for you to lift him up in prayer. He called out sick, uh, so he's at home dealing with sickness. So I ask that you pray for him today, and we're filling in. But it was a good Sunday if he was going to call out, because we have a guest speaker lined up, and he's more of family at this point. Um, so if you give a warm welcome to John as he comes to lead us today. Morning, y'all. How y'all doing? Good. So Paul texted me uh, this morning uh, as I was getting ready and said, you know, I've got flu-like symptoms. I'm not going to be able to make it. Uh, this will be the first time in five years since the church started uh, that I'm not going to make a Sunday. And I thought, oh, <laughs> uh, you know, let's hope I don't screw this thing up then. Uh, but it's all good. Uh, 9 a.m. service went well. We only had one family walk out, so I consider that a win. Um, a little bit about me, I grew up in Polly's Island, Merle Zillant, just north of us up here. Uh, after I graduated high school, I went to Clemson University, or formerly known as the School of National Champions. Are there any Clemson fans in the audience? I saw one little kid wearing a 16 shirt, whoever that was, raising him right. <laughs> Uh, after I graduated uh, college, I came on staff with a college ministry called InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. 
Uh, and I went five years on campus, and then the last six years have been spent on one of our national teams uh, creating training and Bible studies for our student leaders across the country. As for my family, uh, I've been married for seven years to my wife, Kristen. And uh, we have one daughter, Dargan. She's four years old. And our second is coming on the way, a little boy coming in May. So I'm um, excited about that. Last fun fact is uh, we, my wife and I just celebrated our birthdays uh, this past week. So I just turned 33, and she just turned forever young. So that's how that works. But uh, let me uh, pray for us, and then we'll jump right in. <clears throat> Father, the reason that we read this book and study these stories isn't just so that we can become more biblically informed, but transformed. And so I pray that you would reveal yourself to us this morning, give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to respond uh, to what you have for us. So come, Lord Jesus. Amen. All right. Hypothetical situation. You're in high school. Some of you are in high school, so this will be easy for you. But you're in high school, and you're coming home way past curfew, breaking curfew. If God was your parent, how do you think he would respond? Would he be the gracious parent, waiting up, worried, sick, glad to just have you home safely? Or would he be the just parent, waiting up to lay the hammer down because you broke the rules? How would he respond in your mind? So a little more of my high school story. It was a tale of two halves. The first half, I was the super good Christian kid that tried to do everything right. I tell people I didn't drink, smoke, cuss, chew, or date girls to do. Uh, but all of my other friends did. And so eventually, I felt like I was missing out, and I jumped into the party scene with him. And so the last two years of high school, I drank, smoked, cussed, chewed, and dated girls that did too except girls that chew tobacco, because there's some lines you just don't cross. But uh, that latter half of high school, you know, I would come home late, uh, way past curfew, out of a night of drinking and partying, and I would come in, and my mom would be waiting up for me. And I'd go in, and I'd tell her goodnight that I was home, and she would simply say, I'm glad you're home safely. You see, I knew that my mom was the gracious parent, who would always forgive me. And if she caught me in doing something wrong, she would be compassionate and understanding. And knowing that, I used, or more accurately, abused that grace and freedom to just do whatever I wanted. And if we're honest with ourselves, some of us do the exact same thing with God. Some of us view God as the gracious God. You know, when we fail, God forgives. And uh, the benefit of this view is that there's a lot of freedom, right? Freedom from failure, from shame, guilt, or our past. However, the danger is, is that it can lead us into disobedience, to just thinking, well, if God always forgives, then we can do no wrong, right? We're all good. And sometimes we use or abuse that grace to just live life however we want, regardless of what God thinks or says. On the other hand, some of us view God as the just God. When we fail, God makes us pay, right? And the benefit of this view is that you probably feel a great sense of uh, obedience, you know, a desire to do what's right and to be a good person and to do what God says. But the danger is, is that our obedience can just come out of a fear or obligation, you know, it's not really done out of a sense of a desire or a belief that that's what's best for us, but more out of just afraid of being uh, afraid of the consequences. And so the question that I want to ask this morning is, which view is more accurate of who God is? How does God respond 
to our failures? How does God respond when we fail to love those around us? When we say or do things and hurt those around us, how does God respond? Is he the gracious God who always forgives? Or is he the just God who will always make us pay? And this story that we're going to get into gives us insight into how God responds to our failures. As we look at King, one of King David's most significant failures in life. And so, uh, if you haven't been following with us, we've been following the story of uh, King David throughout the fall. Uh, and to catch you up, King David started out as a nobody from nowhere. Uh, he was a lowly shepherd herding sheep in backwoods Bethlehem. But God chose him to become king because of his heart for God and God's people. And during his ascension to power, uh, by all accounts, David was a great guy. He was loyal, uh, he was faithful, he was generous, he was just. Yet, as we saw last week, when he finally came into power, power came into him. At the peak of his prosperity and power, David committed some horrible failures. As we looked at the story of David last week, we saw that while all of David's men were away at war, David initiated an affair with a married woman named Bathsheba, had sex with her, got her pregnant, and rather than coming clean and telling people, he tried to cover it up. So he invited Uriah, one of his soldiers, back from war. Uh, Uriah was Bathsheba's husband uh, and tried to manipulate him multiple times to have sex with Bathsheba so the baby looked like it was his. Yet when all of that failed, David successfully arranged to have Uriah killed in battle, which also resulted in the death of multiple other people. Then David married Bathsheba to make it look like the child was legitimately his and just to tie a bow on his cover-up. You see, David didn't just break curfew. David broke numerous commandments and lives and families because of what he did. And at the end of our last story, it seemed that David had just gotten away with murder without anyone knowing. But as we read in that last line last week, God knew. And in this story, we see God's full response to David's actions. And it starts with God sending a man named Nathan, who was uh, a prophet and one of King David's advisors, to present a peculiar court case for David to decide on. And so the passage goes like this. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said, So there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up with him, and it grew up with him and his children. It used to eat from his table and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now, there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flocks or herds to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the one who had come to him. On hearing this, David's anger burned against this man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall surely restore the lamb fourfold because of this thing he did, and he had no pity. You see, as the king, David will also be like the Supreme Court justice of the nation. And so you can imagine the scene. David's sitting on his throne. He's in a palace. Nathan walks in, bows before the king, and presents, begins to present the list of docket of cases for him to decide on. Yet as David hears this particular case, his blood begins to boil. 
As a former shepherd, David knew what it was like to protect and love your sheep. He used to be the shepherd who was willing to risk his life for his sheep to protect them against predators. And yet this rich man had disregarded his wealth, had stolen this poor man's most prized possession, and slaughtered it to feed a stranger. And it's in response to this horrific and selfish and heartless act that David stands up and yells, this man must die. He doesn't just want the man to pay for the sheep as the law required. He literally wants the man to die. And it's with that that Nathan slaps David in the face with the reality of his own failure, saying, you are that man. The passage goes on to say, Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's wives and his house into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were all too little, I would have given you even more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife, and you killed him. See, here's the genius of what Nathan does. Uh, By presenting this hypothetical court case to David, he enables him to experience what God experiences and feels towards his failure. What wasn't clear before is now made clear. David was who he was because God made him that way. God gave David everything he had, and he would have given him even more, but David had gone and messed it all up. He Uh, neglected all that God had gifted him, abused the power that God had gave him, and exploited the people that God had entrusted to him. You know, the, the little shepherd who was willing to risk his life to protect his sheep against predators had become the predator. At the core of David's failure isn't just acting like he was above the law, but he was above God himself. This wasn't just an assault against God's people. This was an assault against God. So the question is, how should God respond? And it's here I want to break down the the tension that God feels in relation to failure. You know, here you have a God who wants to give and love and bless David, who wants to partner with David to create a world full of beauty and love and creativity. And David had gone and messed that all up by hurting the people around him. And if we're honest, the same is true for each one of us. The reality is is that, like David and Bathsheba, we're all victims and violators at different places and times in our life. Like Bathsheba, we've all been victims, people who have been hurt by others. And like David, we've all been violators, people who have hurt others around us. And so the question is, how should God respond? You know, this is the tension that God has with humanity. Here's a God who wants to love and give and bless humanity, that wants to partner with each one of us to create a world full of beauty and love and creativity, and yet we just keep messing it up by hurting the people around us. And it's in these moments that God has a decision to make. Am I going to graciously forgive them so that I can continue to love and bless them and work through them? Or am I going to justly make them pay for the hurt and the pain that they have caused each other? Yet here's the rub for God. If he graciously forgives so that he can continue to go on loving and blessing us, then there is no justice for the times in which we're victims. 
And a God who turns a blind eye to pain or suffering or injustice is not a good God. That is not good news. And yet, if he justly makes us pay for the hurt and pain that we've caused each other, then there is no hope for any of us because we've all been violators. We've all contributed to this human problem that we experience. And so what's a good God supposed to do? It turns out that he does both. Here's how the passage goes on. Now, therefore, uh, this is God speaking. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did this secretly, but I will do this thing before all of Israel and before the sun. And in response to this, David simply said to Nathan, <laughs> I've sinned against the Lord. Yet Nathan said, Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. You see, at the beginning, you see God's justice, right? Uh, in our last story, we saw that everyone else suffered the consequences of David's actions while David just got away free. And yet here you see God saying, not in my world. And he's going to make David experience the consequences of his own actions. David had used violence and murder to protect himself. Now David would experience what it's like to have violence and murder come against your own house. David had stolen another man's wife. Now David would experience what it's like to have your wife stolen. David had tried to cover it up. Now David would experience what it's like to be exposed. And it's here that you see God's justice, right? That's justice for Bathsheba and Uriah. That's justice for us in the times that we're victims. And it's in the face of this just God that David is crushed by the weight of his own failure. And give him credit. <laughs> he simply owns up to it. He doesn't downplay. He doesn't blame shift. He doesn't argue. He doesn't try to counterbalance with all these good things that I've done for God. <clears throat> he simply owns it and says, I messed up. And yet just when you think God is going to carry out full justice and sentence David to death, he forgives him. In spite of all the horrific things that David had done, God still loves David and wants to bless him and work through him. And yet here's the thing, and don't miss this. Grace and forgiveness come at a cost. Multiple people had been hurt and killed because of David's actions. Full justice says David should die. You know, according to God's law, David should die. Even according to David himself, David should die. But if God spares David lives and he doesn't die, then who does? In the end, his son does. The passage finishes with, Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Now, I'll be honest with you. I struggle with that. <laughs> and it's okay to struggle with things uh, in the Bible. Uh, you know, I think, why would God allow David's son to pay for David's failures? Why would God allow an innocent person to pay for the failures of someone else? And I, if you're thinking that that's unfair, I'm with you. It seems unfair, but recognize that's exactly what God did for us. When it came to all of our failures and faults throughout human history, God didn't make us pay. His son did. 
Jesus was innocent. We were guilty, yet Jesus paid the cost of our failures so that we could experience freedom. You know, how can God be both fully gracious and fully just at the same time? The cross. It's on the cross that Jesus experiences the full extent of God's justice so that we can experience the full extent of his forgiveness and his freedom. Because of Jesus and what he's done, that means that God will always, every single time, respond to honesty and humility with grace and mercy. That's good news for all of us. That's how God responds to failure. And the gospel is really the only story that I've ever heard. It's the only belief system or religion that I've ever come across that has provided, that is big enough to provide hope for both the victim and the violators. And so how are we supposed to respond to it? Well, uh, for those of us who uh, come from a perspective of God is merely just a gracious God who always forgives, the question that we have to ask ourselves is how much did our forgiveness cost Jesus? Tim Keller, a well-known pastor in New York City, once used the analogy that uh, imagine, imagine you went away for business on a long trip, and during that time you asked your neighbor to collect your mail. If your neighbor paid a bill that came in the mail while you were away, how should you respond to him? And the answer is, well, it depends. How much was the bill? If it was a light bill, a couple hundred bucks, you thank the man, you shake his hand, and you repay him. But if it was the IRS coming to repossess your home and force you into bankruptcy and ruin your life because of tens of thousands of dollars of back taxes, you fall on your knees and you offer him everything. Our forgiveness costs Jesus everything, including his life. How could we not give him ours? Is God gracious? Absolutely. But recognize that that grace and freedom came at the cost of Jesus's life. How could we not follow him. On the other hand, if you come from the perspective that God is merely a just God who always makes you pay, then the question that you have to ask yourself is, how much of your failures did Jesus pay for? If he only paid for some of them, you still owe something. If he only paid for most of them, you still owe something. If he only paid for the small ones but not the big ones, you still owe something. But the reality is, is that Jesus didn't just pay for some or most of our failures. He paid for all of them which means you don't know anything anymore. If you're still living in shame or guilt or trying to work or obey God out of a sense of earning his favor or trying to repay him, then you're overpaying. You need to stop overpaying and simply be free. Is God a just God? Absolutely. But God fulfilled his justice on the cross so that you can go free. So be free. In the end, Nathan calls out David so that he can recognize God's justice and own up to his faults and failures and so that he can receive God's grace and live into the freedom that he offers. And I think the same is true for us. This could be one of many Nathan moments in our lives where we recognize God's justice and own up to our faults and failures, not to downplay, blame shift, argue, counterbalance with all the good things that we had done, but to simply say, I messed up, so that we can receive his grace and experience the full extent of the freedom and the life that he wants us to live into. Because of Jesus, God will always respond to humility and honesty 
grace and mercy. So let's do that now. Let me pray. God, uh, we acknowledge that you know us. You know us better than we know ourselves. <laughs> you know all of our faults and failures. Uh, and so, God, I pray right now that you would help us to just be honest with ourselves. Help us to be real and just own up to them and to confess them before you, to acknowledge them so that we can live into the freedom and the grace and the blessing that you have for us. And so right now, if there's places, faults, failures, uh, I pray that you would just bring them to mind. And I pray, God, that forgive us for the things that we've done. Forgive us for the ways that we've hurt one another. If there are places where we need to uh, own up and make amends, I pray that we would. If there's places in which we need to forgive others, I pray that we would. If there's places that we've been hurt and victimized by others, I pray that you would bring healing and that you would restore us and set us free from that. And Jesus, we pray that you would come and have your way so that we can worship a just and gracious and good God. Come, Lord Jesus.